0: Good morning. Good to see you guys here this morning. Boy, it feels like I've been gone for a while. Although I haven't physically been gone. It actually felt good not to preach for a while. Not to work on Sundays. Because you know, I only work on Sundays. So it felt good to like take off and not not have to work. Um, a couple of things I want to say before we jump in to our... By the way, do you like our brand new, revised, renewed, redone, kind of the... Sermon bandit, yeah. That's just a chick y'all to thinking like we're on to something new. We're not, you know? Yes, no. (laughs) Oh, wow, we're on to something. No, we're still talking about Acts. First and foremost, let me say this. I get an opportunity. It's a privilege for me to travel to different places and speak. And one of the things I love about our church, and one of the things I love about our church that I think is different, I don't want to say it's better words, but different from our church than other places I speak, is that, Many of you, for the most part, come expecting something to happen. Many of you come expecting something to happen. God is going to do something, small, big. He's going to do something in my life. And that creates a certain level of energy or electricity. And I love that about you. Let me clarify. That also includes some of you that come as scoffers or skeptical, you're cynical or you're burned by the church and you're coming back and you kind of, you know, maybe a chip on your shoulder, I don't care what kind of energy it is, you come in with some level of energy and I like you too, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping may both of your tribes increase because the group that really I have a hard time with is people that come to church, new community, because they want a they nice experience. I want to have a nice time. I I want to have a nice time. And I say this with all sincerity, and I'm not a mean person. Although some people would disagree. But I say this, if you want a nice time, go see a movie. Really. Matinee showing right at 11 o'clock. Go see a movie. I love the fact that you're here. Don't get me wrong. But you know what? We're not here to have a nice time. Amen. I don't care. I'd rather have you walk out of here offended and angry than say, I had a nice time. And I love that about you, new community. Backhanded encouragement maybe, but I liked it about you. Y'all are here to have a nice time. That's what I'm saying. I like that. Do you like that about yourself? I hope so. Because if you want a nice time, I'm telling you, there are lots of other churches I could recommend. Secondly, secondly, so I love the fact that you're here and I love you church. And I'd rather be here than anywhere else. And I mean that. I love preaching here. Secondly, everything that we do here at New Community is a constant desire to articulate to you what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And so here's what we're going to do from here on out. We're just going to, we're just going to, before we preach anything else, whatever, we're just going to, together, remind ourselves what the gospel is. Every Sunday. Every Sunday. So you can walk out here and go, I heard the gospel today. Okay, cool. So here it is. Put the definition up there. I think it's, I think it's there. Okay. Here, here's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that through Christ, the power of God's kingdom has entered history to renew the whole world. And when we believe and rely on Jesus' work and record for our relationship with God, that kingdom power comes upon us and begins to work through us. The gospel, the good news. There. So you heard it today. (laughs) You heard it today. Our job every Sunday is to get at that in whatever capacity we can. That's our whole job. That's the whole deal, okay? So today, as we come and continue our series, Church with. By the way, I'm glad nobody walked up and left when I, when I said, I'm glad you're not here to have a nice time. Y'all know what I mean by that? Do y- y'all know? Nod your head if you know what I mean by that, yeah? So if you came for the first time today, you go, why is he offending me? I'm not offending you. I'm encouraging you. Because, because, here's the deal. Because, because y'all are at that age where you don't have to come in the morning. Some of y'all went to bed like at five in the morning. I know, you don't have to tell me. But you get up and come. Why? To have a nice time? I don't think so. Staying in bed, that's pretty nice. <laughs> so why are you here? Why are you here? Is it to encounter God? I hope so. I hope so. All right. So we're continuing the book of Acts. So you might as well turn your Bibles to Acts 19. Okay? Acts 19. Should we do a brief review? (laughs) We're never going to finish this book okay here it is here's a two-minute review somebody somebody start I'm serious when I start two minutes and then at the end of two minutes say stop okay here it is a 2 minutes review just to catch you up Acts chapter one okay so Acts describes I, I need to say this because there's some people who are not Christian here and they go what's the book of Acts book of Acts is a, is, is a book in the Bible Acts described the history of the church it's written by a guy named Luke who was a doctor in his profession but he was also a historian Luke is the guy that wrote the book of Acts, and he wrote it actually as a firsthand eyewitness because he traveled with this guy named Paul, okay, and wrote down and jotted down how the church, the Christian church, first exploded and began to grow, okay? So, so, so what he writes is, is the history of the church, but it's not just history, it's the history of the mission of the church. So Luke's emphasis and focus is to, to, to tell us and describe the, the, the history of the mission of the church. How the gospel of Jesus Christ starts out in Jerusalem with a small band of ragtag you know, people, um, all Jews, and it expands to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that this was going to happen. Now, for the first half of the uh, uh, book of Acts, it's sort of talking about how the gospel remained predominantly in this monoethic, monocultural environment within Jerusalem. But God has a sense of humor. God uses this xenophobic, racist, fundamentalist legalist by the name of Paul, converts him, and he uses this guy to expand the uh, gospel to the ends of the earth. And so the second half of Acts, is we see the gospel sort of going beyond Jerusalem, Judea, a monoethic, monocultural environment to, to, to reach the rest of the world. Paul's primary ministry uh, sort of is centered on three missionary journeys. We cover missionary journey 1, 2, all the way from chapters 1 through uh, about chapter 16, 17. But in chapter 17 through 20, we cover Paul's third missionary journey. And then he hits Jerusalem and then he goes to Rome. So where we're at right now is the beginning of his third missionary journey. There, did that take two minutes? Okay, it's good. Ten seconds left. Okay, all right. So, when we come today to Acts 19, Paul is in a city called Ephesus, okay? Paul's in a city called Ephesus. Let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus before we go. Ephesus is sort of a prominent city in an area called Asia Minor, okay? And if you remember, this is the city, or this is the area, Asia Minor, that, that God forbid Paul to go to in Acts 16. God said, it's not time. So finally, God opens doors, and Paul goes. Let me tell you a little about Ephesus. We're going to spend some time this week and next week on it. Ephesus was a, was a predominantly uh, city. Predominantly, commercial city, but also the occult thrived there. Two things. The imperial cult, that's worship of emperors, thrived there. There are three temples dedicated to that. Okay? But the, 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 the prize of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis or temple of Diana. Okay? And I'll talk a little bit more about that. The worship of this goddess sort of lay at the center of Ephesus. And it's millions and millions of people from all over the world that came to see this thing. By the way, this sucker was seven times the size of the Parthenon okay seven no i'm sorry four sizes. four four sizes a, a size of the parthenon and it was known as the seventh wonder of the world this was a gigantic enormous temple that drew millions of people all over the world and it was a very successful business and the temple actually self-served as a banking institution in and of itself so two things okay tons of people all over the world generating all kinds of income it'll be significant for next week but the occult superstition Worship of idols and gods thrived in the city. And Paul is in this city of Ephesus. Let me pick up the story in verse 8. So Paul's in Ephesus. Paul entered the synagogue and boldly spoke there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way, remember, is what the Christian movement was known at the time. It wasn't called Christianity. Known as the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And I'll talk about that in a moment. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul does two things that we've seen him do over and over again. Number one, he begins in the synagogue. Do you remember why he goes to the synagogue? He accomplished two two things in the synagogue that was very important for him. Number one, it it, it enabled him to be able to discharge his responsibility and also his call to his own people. The Jews. Secondly, enabled him to reach out to the God fearers or the Gentiles who converted to Judaism who are incredibly important, bridge people into into reaching the larger Roman world, because they knew both cultures. So Paul begins in the synagogue, and then he does something that he's always done, which is then he takes the gospel, the message, and he goes, check this out, to, to, to the public square, to the marketplace. Like he did in Athens, Acts chapter 17. He goes out and takes the gospel. And in Athens, uh, or in Ephesus, he, he does this in a place called the lecture hall of Tyrannus. It's essentially a hall that was owned by a guy named Tyrannus. By the way, Tyrannus, his name means tyrant. Wonder about his parents a little bit to name your child Tyrant, right? But that's what his name literally means, okay? So it's a lecture owned by a guy named Tyrannus. Or maybe I'm thinking his students named him that, okay? I don't know. So, anyway, Paul rents out this lecture hall, Okay? We talk about a moment, and he. What does he do? The Greek word it says is is dialogomenos, di, 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 di which literally means to dialogue. So here's what Paul's doing in this lecture hall. He's not preaching at them. He's not doing even. He's dialoguing. From eleven to four, we'll talk about five hours a day. He's dialoguing. People come and go, dialogue. People come and go, dialogue. People come and go, dialogue. He's just talking to them, dialoguing with them about the gospel, about God, about faith, about christianity about this resurrected jesus i pause here for a moment to catch up because it is incredibly important that we spend some time talking a little bit about paul's missionary method or his evangelistic method shown throughout the book of acts and i put some bullet points up there for you we'll talk a little bit about that and we see these prominently in these larger cities and it's so important for us as we reach the city of chicago first of all paul spent far more time in secular places than sacred Paul spent far more time in secular places than sacred, okay? Why is this important? Let me tell you why it's important. Here's how most churches in America today do evangelism, right? It's, we have a great service. We have a great program. Invite your friends and come. We'll build it. They'll come. Now, stop for a moment. Listen. It is incredibly important that you invite your friends. I'm telling you guys all the time, invite your friends, invite your friends, invite your friends, invite your friends. But it's not an either or, it's a both and. We want your friends to come here and experience and encounter Jesus and what Christianity is about. But at the same time, we have to embody the mission of Paul, which is he doesn't spend a lot of time in the synagogue. He goes out into the marketplace, the schools, the classrooms, the bars, the gyms, the cafes. I found a great cafe, by the way. I'm always looking for great cafes to hang out. Anybody have been to Gallery Cafe, corner of North and Wood? some some of you guys yeah great great coffee man i was in the other day they were roasting coffee i've never seen coffee roasted before i didn't know coffee beans were white did you know that when they start out and my wife goes they're not white they're green i'm like they were white she goes they color them i'm like what i'm eating color beans they were white i sat there it was great it smelled the whole place smelled of roasted coffee i'm getting to know the people better i get to interact i get to interact paul doesn't stay within the confines of Christianity, Christian friends, Christian environment. He goes out more time in secular than uh, secular than sacred. Two, Paul's presentations were very well reasoned and intelligent. The Greek two Greek verbs that's continually used in Acts chapter eighteen and nineteen are two words: dialogomai, which we already which already discussed. To, it literally means to reason or to argue, and patho, which means to persuade. So here's what we see in the book of Acts about evangelism: people don't just go and say just believe. Nor do they just give an emotional you know, charge, like, what do they do? They give rational, reasonable reasons, rational reason, reasons, and, and, and they try and persuade, they talk, they dialogue. So different from what we do, isn't it? They really believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ could be believed rationally, reasonably. That there were good reasons to believe that to choose this would be the choose way of life. So they weren't afraid. They didn't have to manipulate they dress it up. They talked, shared with reason, persuaded, dialogued. I love that. I absolutely love that. I see some people who try and make this dichotomy, right? Trust in the Holy Spirit, you know? It's not really about us. You don't have... Holy Spirit is spirit of truth. He doesn't work despite truth, evidence, reason. He works through it. Amen? Christians, Christians, Christians. Dialogue. Reason. Persuade. That's so much more attractive than just because. Just because. I don't want to believe something just because. Tell me why. And book of Acts, the apostles and the early believers gave rational reasons for the resurrected Lord. Third. Third. Going on, You Paul identified with the people of the city and he really got to understand their life in ways. Isn't that cool? Paul spent, the Bible says, a year and a half in Corinth and he spends three years. Check this out. He spent three years in Ephesus. Three years total in Ephesus. What do we get? Paul really became a part of those communities. He really became a part of the city of Ephesus. Living, working. Remember he was a tent maker? I bet you Paul was the best tent maker in the city. I guarantee you that Paul did his job with such excellence that when he said, when people are like, what else do you do? Oh, by the way, I rent out this lecture hall of Tyrannus and I talk. You do? I'll go check it out. On a side note, your ability to do your job well and earn the respect of your coworkers is what's going to give you authority and authenticity to share the gospel. You stink at work. You're lazy. You show up late. You leave early. You're a terrible witness. Evangelism begins there. Amen. Paul, I guarantee you, was a phenomenal tent maker. He probably did his job to the best of his ability. People are like, where do you get good tents in Ephesus? Paul. Paul? He makes phenomenal tents, dude. Yeah? Yeah! (laughs) Missional churches, you guys, and missional people are keenly aware of their culture. Paul was keenly aware of the culture because he lived and was fully integrated, involved in the life of the city, socially, economically, culturally in every way. So that, check this out, missionally effective people know what questions people are asking. Instead of the other way around. Here's how typical Christian evangelism works. You go to somebody and go, I already know what questions you're asking. You do? Yeah, I do. How do you know? I just know. So here's what I'm gonna say. You need to da 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 da. And they go, those are not questions that I'm asking. We have these questions that we think people are asking already, so we go and try and answer those. And there's a disconnect. People are go,ing That's not my issues with the Christian faith. It isn't. No. How do you find out what people are asking? You ask them. To which a lot of Christians go, but what if they ask and I don't know the answer? As if that's a bad thing. When somebody says. You ask you something, you go, uh, I don't know. You know, I found it amazingly effective because it's amazing how disarming it is to have a Christian these days to actually admit that they don't know something. It's incredibly attractive when non-Christians hear Christians go, I don't, I don't know. You don't? No, I don't. But check this out. I'll go find out for you. And you know what you do? Then you go. You study, you learn, you grow. You pray. It's the best of both worlds. They walk away going, humility, in a Christian. Wow, who knew? Secondly, you learn, you grow. Amen? And you come back. It's phenomenal. But check this out. You won't know the questions people are asking if you hang out with, not, if you hang out with Christians all day, 24-7. You'll never know what kinds of Christians Christians are wrestling with if the entire sum total of your life is revolved around Christians and Christian activities. Paul found himself in low culture, involved in every way, listening, asking in such a way. You know, cr- Christian church, we are so bad at this. Matter of fact, we make it even worse because typical churches will extract Christians from their environment and bring them into a church setting. Let me give you an example. Why do churches start their own coffee shops? I, I don't understand. And then and then and then be real cute and go. Here's what we're gonna call our coffee shop, Hebrews. <laughs> That's a real name, by the way, of a coffee shop, Hebrews. Okay. I, 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 I'm going. Oh my gosh! Some of you just got it. I'm wow. Oh. Can I ask you something? You guys, let's just talk. I mean, we're dialoguing this morning. Why why, why start your coffee shops? Why not go to the coffee shops where there are good people who need to know Jesus and spend time there? Somebody came up to me and said, Can we start a basketball league in our church? I said, Absolutely not. There are tons of basketball leagues in the city. Go join one. You mean, could you give me more examples? We don't want to extract people because the mentality of the church often is. How do we get people into the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the book of Acts is more consumed about how do we get the church out into the world? Big difference. Big difference. We are not going to be a church that's consumed with bringing people into the church. We are a church that's consumed with how do we get this church, you, me, out into the world. Somebody clap to that. Thank you very much. I'm glad it resonates with one person in this room. Fourth, Paul made himself accessible to those who didn't know Christ. He made himself accessible. There's an ancient textual footnote in verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 9, that tells us that Paul rented the hall from, as I said before, 11 to 4. Do you know why? Because this is the context. How many of you guys have been to these cultures where 11 to 4, everything shuts down, and there's a siesta? Why can't we do that in this country? I don't understand, man. I'd love that, you know? So they started early, like 7 o'clock. They worked really hard until 11. Everybody closed, right? And they did whatever, you know, took a nap, whatever. And then they worked again from like 4 to 8 or 9. And and what does Paul do? He works really hard, tent making from 7 to 11. Then he went to the lecture hall. Or he dialogued with people. And then at 4 o'clock he went back to tent making. I just find that so attractive. Do you know why? Because here he is, Paul, giant, giant apostle Paul, out amongst Everyday people. Totally accessible to them. People ask me why I hang out at Starbucks. I was in a church planters assessment center. Uh, and, and, and we were talking about evangelism. They had me, one of the panelists. They said, oh, what do you do during your day? And I told them. I said, well, I, I hang out at coffee shops. And they go, and these were church planters. the good Christian folks. So I was, they're like, like all day? Yeah, almost all day. Like, like, what do you do there? Like, are there people that you like intentionally meet with? Sometimes. What about like? Do you, like, let people just, like, come and talk to you? Yeah. (laughs) Can I ask you something? How accessible are you to those who don't know Jesus? I mean, seriously. Seriously. How accessible are you? Here's what I mean by that, not just physically. You know, this is so important. You know how this is really important? I found this is really, really important when you're talking to somebody of another faith. Because when you're talking to a Muslim or a Hindu, or you're talking to an atheist or somebody else, it is incredibly important that you approach that person with a level of accessibility and a willingness to dialogue. Because you know what Christians do when we talk to other people of faith? Deep down inside we're going, I know better, so I'm gonna win you over. I'm gonna convert you, I'm gonna what? And they know that right away. You know how incredibly attractive it is when Christians approach people of other faith and go, I am equally flawed, I'm equally sinful, I'm equally dependent on the grace of God, we're all the same. I don't have more. And by the way, I'm not expecting there to be immediate conversion. Let's talk. Let's dialogue. You ask me questions about your faith, I don't know. Let me go learn. And we will come back. Evangelism, you guys, is as much of who you are as it is what you do. Does your life have a level of attractiveness and beauty? Because you're the kind of person who, who, with, who is anchored in the gospel and yet unafraid to engage people in dialogue, conversation, accessible, keenly aware of local culture. What people are asking, what people are thinking. And if you're sitting there going, it sounds like it's a lot of work. Yes, it is a lot of work. Let's get to it. Amen. The best encouragement I've ever heard from one of my non-Christian friends. When he said to me, he's like, you know what? I like hanging out with you because I don't get the feeling that you want to convert me. And I said, Precisely. And if you think, Well, don't you want to convert them? It's God's work. I'm just an accessible, available instrument. How about you? How are you doing? How am I doing? Let's keep going. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. So God did extraordinary miracles. By the way, do you find that funny? Extraordinary miracles. Isn't that a little redundant? Like, are there not extraordinary miracles? Which made me like, you know, I, had some, I, was, I, I was being silly, so I used my iPhone. I Googled something. I Googled redundant phrases. And here's what I got, right? This has nothing to do with the. Hey, like, we use these. We would save a lot of time if we stop using these. So, and I heard these, by the way, throughout this week. That's why I found that funny. Somebody said, basic fundamentals. Isn't that what fundamental is? Basic. Okay, Here's what somebody said. I love this. Oh, I commute back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that funny? Isn't that what commuting is? You go back and Anyway, okay. Somebody said to me, Pastor Peter, I'm in a difficult dilemma. Hey, do you want some frozen ice? (laughs) I like this. We say this. Salvation is a free gift. Of course it's free because it's a gift. Gift free? Okay, there you go. And somebody said this this week to me. uh, I I was met with an unexpected surprise. We'll just stop there. Okay, back on to the Bible, okay? So God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left him. Would you everybody look up here because I need to say this once and for all because if you're like me, we live in a day when there's a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, and people are obsessed. People are preoccupied with people. That is, miracle workers. But I love the fact that in the book of Acts, the preoccupation is always with God. I love the fact that the preoccupation is always with God. Luke says it. Who did extraordinary miracles? Say it with me, church. Who? God did extraordinary miracles. There's no fascination, preoccupation with people and what they can do. God did extraordinary miracles. If you ask me, I don't believe in miracle workers. I believe in a miracle worker. A miracle healer, capital H. But see the balance here, by the way, in Luke's description of miracles. Okay, before we go on. First, notice that Luke calls him, yes, extraordinary. I made fun of it. But here's what the word extraordinary in Greek literally means. It's not just saying, oh, wonderful or tremendous. The Greek word is tykousis, which literally means singular or unusual. That means that these miracles that Paul were doing were even unusual, even for Paul. So there are highly unusual miracles that Paul were performing. There's no indication that it happened everywhere that Paul went. There was an indication that Paul and his team expected this to happen all the time. However, everybody say however. However, say it one more time. However. On the other hand, this account should make us very wary of being skeptical and cynical about the power of God to heal. Church, let me speak to you for a moment. The Bible clearly tells us in James 5.16 that we should pray for God's power to heal people. And yet we don't. Why? Why do we not expect God to work? And by the way, if you're going, I expect God to work. My question would be simple. When's the last time you prayed for someone who was sick and prayed that they would be supernaturally miraculously healed? Why do we struggle? A couple reasons, I think. Number one, because we see book of Acts, you know, and, and we see these incredible things. Here's one reason why we struggle. Because of the revulsion and the disgust of what we see on television. Anybody say amen? I was just flipping through the channel the other day, and I don't know why I torture myself like this, right? But I saw one of these faith healers on television, and he did what this text doesn't say. He was waving a white handkerchief. Hey, you know I'm going with this, right? And he looked at the TV screen, he said, if you send $25... By the way, you notice, you notice, no money exchanges hands between Paul and these people. So anybody that wants to use this text, go, well, you know, he used handkerchief, go, hell no money passed. The revulsion of these miracle faith healers, all of us just go, oh, makes my job a lot harder, your job as a Christian to explain, right? So the revulsion of the misuse, I think for a lot of us, just goes, Ah, oh, healing, supernatural, whoa. For, for a lot of us, you know what it is? It's not because of what scripture says. A lot of us, we don't believe it because we have not, checked this out, personally experienced them or personally seen them. For many of us, the reason why we don't believe and pray actively healing is because we have not personally experienced. You know what? I got an email from somebody today or uh, this week, really coming back to faith. And he said, You know what? I read, I'm reading the book of Acts for the first time, and, and he said this. He said, I'm surprised at seeing all these miracles and healing. It's cool how God does that today. And it got me thinking. One of my professors back at one of my seminaries said, if you lock a brand new Christian in a room and give them a Bible, they won't come out of that reading the Bible going, oh, God doesn't work like that today. We don't believe in miracles and God healing because of personal experience. Here's the problem, though. Let me ask you, how accurate is personal experience engaging truth in reality? Come on, talk to me here. I know some of us have a God complex or like, what I experience, it is truth and reality. Thank you very much. Which just proved that you don't see reality. This is so dangerous because, listen, our experience might tell us that God has forsaken us and left us. But truth tells us, God saying, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you personal experience might tell us that when we go through suffering and hardship God has abandoned me he doesn't care and yet God's truth tells us that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God our experience might tell us that when we sin we are condemned in the eyes of God but truth tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our personal experience might tell us God can't heal today God doesn't work today what does truth tell us? the truth tells us James 5, pray for healing so that you may be healed. You hearing me? The healing of the apostles in the book of Acts, you guys, weren't just, check this out, some theologians say, well, they were just authenticating their work as, as, as apostles and God's calling them. No, the healing miracles of the apostles in the book of Acts were following the healing miracles of Jesus. That is, they demonstrated that the kingdom of God had been ushered in. The kingdom of God. The healing miracles always went with casting out evil spirits. Did you notice that? They were healed and evil spirits were cast out. Why? Because when Jesus cast out demons and healed, it was a demonstration that Jesus Christ and his kingdom, the rule and reign of God, have been ushered in and Satan is going to be soundly defeated and his realm under which sickness, death reigns, will be redeemed and restored in the name of Jesus. So it was a demonstration that God's kingdom, the rule and reign of God, had been ushered in. That's why. So here's my question for you. My question for you is, how often, how actively do you pray for healing? For yourself and for others. You say God could heal. And you even say God does heal. But the fact that you are not willing to actively pray means that you actually, in reality, do not believe that he works like that today. You'll never ask God for things that you do not believe God can and will do. And this quote right here is a question just for you to sit on before I move on. Are you and I, are we limiting God's ability to work because we are not asking God for things that we think are not possible? Hmm? How many of you sitting here today have loved ones, relatives, brothers and sisters, neighbors who are sick, who are ill, people in your small groups, and you're not asking God because you are limiting Him by not asking because you don't think it's possible? Because somehow you got to reconcile that with our Savior who said, With man, this is impossible. With God, say it with me, all things are, say it, possible. I want you to sit on that, okay? I want you to sit on that church. Well, by experience, and I haven't seen, uh, are we going to submit Scripture under the authority of our experience? Or will we submit our experience under the authority of Scripture? Hmm? Are you going to let your experiences dictate who God is and what he does today? Or will you submit your experience and the authority of who God is and what he does? Hmm? God heals today, church. May we be a church. I pray to God. today, right after the service, we are going to pray for people. For folks who are emotionally in need of healing. Physically in need of healing. Okay? And I want you to take advantage of the time to come. Okay, verse 13. Let's keep going. So some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who are demon possessed. You guys, this is funny. This is hilarious. Okay? Not what I just read, but what's about to come. They would say, "In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out." Verse fourteen. Seven sons of Siva or Shiva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, "Look, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who the heck are you?" I didn't read the whole text at the beginning because I wanted you guys to, like, actually come this moment with me, right? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Does anybody else find that funny? I find that hilarious. First First of all, in case you're wondering, historically, there was no such guy as a chief priest by the name of Sceva, okay? So most likely what scholars say is he named himself that. Which is not surprising when you see what the rest of he does, right? So he walked around going, I am the chief priest. I am the chief priest, which is pretty funny. Ephesus, as we talked about earlier, was full of the occult and superstitions. And exorcisms were commonplace, okay? And these guys are trying to cash in on the name of Jesus. Because check this out. Here's how exorcisms worked in the city of Ephesus, okay? These guys found the name. If you find a name that was more powerful than the name of the evil spirit inhabiting the person, that you could cast that spirit out, right? So they're always on the lookout for a good name. Good name, right? so they hear there is this guy going around preaching in the name of jesus and all these evil spirits are coming out is that right that's right jesus hmm jesus hmm good name cool name let's use it so they go to this guy who's evil uh, you know possessed with evil spirit and they say "It, it we know in our minds that the name of jesus might be more powerful so in the name of jesus whom uh what's his name again Paul, Paul preaches, I command you. And what did the evil spirit do? Just laughed at them. Okay? And the seven sons of Siva turned into the seven streakers of Siva as he ran through the city of Ephesus with a big old whooping. What do we learn from this passage today? Two things real quick. Number one, there's nothing magical about the name Jesus. Do what you go, okay, move on. Oh, no, 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 no. Hold on there for a moment. These guys are misled because they're using the name of Jesus. Listen, listen, listen. Name of Jesus. When they don't know him, have a relationship with him, love him. How often do we as Christians... Invoke the name of Jesus when we don't know him, love him, and enjoy a relationship with him. The room gets real quiet. Because I've done that. When I'm not enjoying God, when I'm not... Loving God when I'm not in communion with God, invoking the name Jesus. Here's how some of us do it too. A little bit lighthearted note. How many of you guys were taught when you prayed? Make sure you include in Jesus' name. Jenny and I did that, right? We we're teaching Parker and Sophia how to pray, right? And 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 you know, they, they could say whatever. Parker's typical prayer is when we get together for a meal, he says, Thank you, God, for, for Daddy, for Mommy, for Sophie, for Parker, for Dottie Dog, which is his, his, uh, his stuffed animal, for pop Up, another stuffed animal. And he lists like 10 stuffed animals. And then Jenny and I will go, "You Thank you for anything else. Um, and this will, thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Sophie does the same thing now. And at the end, why? Because we've instilled that. I was studying this text, and I step back, and I go, why do we do that? I'll tell you why you and I do that, because you know, erroneously, here's what we think. We think, some of us, that when we put in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, it's like an extra kick. <laughs> Come on, some of y'all relate. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, of course. It's like, okay, that one's good enough, so it's gotta get there. So, in Jesus' name. So, some of us, it's like putting a postage on delivery, right? It's like, in Jesus' name, it's the postage to make sure it gets delivered. Here's the gospel. In Jesus, our postage stamp has already been paid. You know what in Jesus' name is? In the Lord's Prayer, you've got to listen to me, please. In Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught people how to pray, did he teach people at the end, make sure you say, now, in Jesus, did he say that? No. Why in the model prayer does he not say that? Because you know what he did say? He said, when you pray, here's how you open up. Our Father. Do you know what in Jesus' name is? It's the, our Father. What is that? Our Father, in Jesus' name, identifies you and me as His. Prayer only works on family terms. Prayer doesn't work if God is your king, although He is. Prayer doesn't work if God is just your creator, although He is. Prayer doesn't work if God is just your Savior, although he is. Prayer works because you and I can say with me, say it with me, ready? Our Father. And as soon as we say that, we're reminded we are identified with Jesus. And by his work of redemption, we are his. And we say, our Father, God not understanding, I'm going. Okay, now you make sure in Jesus' name it's going to come. After kick, no. We say, "Our Father," is already bringing us into the throne room. That by the cross of Jesus Christ, sinful humanity could commune with God. Is that unbelievable to anybody else? Is that unbelievable that you and I can say, "Our Father," and He says, "Yes, child." Ah, oh. ah. Oh. That's why prayer works. It identifies you as his. So some of y'all go out here and go, I don't have to say it in Jesus' name. No. But you make sure that he is your heavenly father. And that you are his. Second principle we need to learn is this. Real quick. If we're going to reach Chicago, you and I better not be naive about spiritual warfare. Holy cow. Holy cow. Can I get an Amen. We cannot be. These events are real. The devil, Satan, is powerful, and he is very active. Just a primer, a little bit on spiritual warfare before we move on, folks. Satan is known by many names, but two names that he is most commonly called is Satan, which means Satan. Why is that funny? I'm serious. Satan. Was that one of those redundancies? Well, excuse me. 36 times what does satan mean it means adversary satan is our opponent he's our adversary he's our enemy he's warring against us the other name that he's known for most often outside of satan is the devil and he's called that 35 times and devil means check this out you guys slanderer and that means that satan devil's role is to slander us before god the father and knowing that we have absolutely no part to stand before a holy god if not for jesus but he is commonly at work slandering you and slandering me and saying, look at that. He's yours. She's yours. Look how they behave. And Jesus just stands there and saying, pay for, Paid for, pay for, pay for our father. That's right. Devil Satan. He is mentioned 250 times in the New Testament. He is mentioned in the New Testament more than once per chapter. Everybody say he's real. He's active, he's powerful. First Peter 2 tells us that Satan's like a roaring lion who's prowling about looking for someone to devour. He's angry, he's off, he is furious, he is looking to destroy lives. And he's after you. And he's after me. People commonly ask, can a Christian be demon possessed? I think that's the wrong question to ask. I think it's missing the point because the word possessed is not in the original writings of the new Testament. Did you know that it was added by the translators? The word that is appeared in the new Testament for what Satan does is demon. which has the idea of being demonized. The question is, can a Christian be demonized? That is, can a Christian be, uh, can a Christian be tempted? Can a Christian be oppressed? Can a Christian be pressured? Can a Christian be pushed? And the answer is yes. It has nothing to do with spatial language. He's inside me, he's outside me. It's demonosomite, demonized. Can Satan affect, influence, control? Romans chapter 6 verse 1. I'll tell you what scripture says. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Can a person be demon possessed? Wrong question. Can a person be demonized? Look, if Satan tempts you to do something and you do it, you're his slave. We're enslaved in a sense, whether we like it. We're not controlled by him. Here's the key, though. Listen, before you get all freaked out on me. The key is a believer cannot be controlled by Satan against his will. A believer cannot be controlled by Satan against his will. Why? Greater is he who is in you than he was in the world. But that means that the only ground that Satan has is the ground that you give him. The ground that Satan has is the ground that you give him. To which you go, I don't give him any ground, really. Here's what scripture says. Some of y'all are smiling going, man, I need to come back, take back some territory. Because he's, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Everybody say foothold. Foothold. Paul is saying, there is a way in which you give Satan ground. Foothold. If you gets strong enough, it's called a stronghold. There is a way we give Satan strategic camp in our lives. How do we do that? Oh, there's many ways we do that. But let me just mention one. You give Satan a foothold, a stronghold. When you don't forgive. Listen to me. And this is why forgiveness is so freaking hard. When you don't forgive someone, it creates a foothold in your life for Satan to make camp. And you know what happens? Your heart grows bitter. And that bitterness becomes toxic to your soul. And a person who's unforgiving and has become bitter and hard, and their soul has become toxic check this out you become blind. You become blind. you go, "What do I mean?" I see fine, No, no. You become blind, eh, to the people around you who are reaching out to you. You are blind. To the loving people who are reaching out to you. Two, you become blind to the people who are there in your life. Wanting to be your community. Wanting to be your family. Wanting to be there for you. You become totally blind to that. So here's what happens. Unforgiveness turns to bitterness. Bitterness turns to skepticism. Skepticism turns to cynicism. And cynicism eats away at your soul. I'm just kidding. I could say that again. Can I just, before I say it again, let's be honest here. How many of y'all know somebody or you are somebody that's dealing with this right now? Raise your hands. Raise your hands high, 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 high. Look around the room. Look around the room. Do you think, do you think this is an accident? Do you think this is an accident that Christians struggle with forgiveness? Satan knows the way that he gets a hook in your life and develops a foothold is he has you unwilling to forgive. And so unforgiveness turns into bitterness. Bitterness turns into skepticism. Skepticism turns into cynicism. And cynicism is like cancer that becomes toxic to your soul. Here's what happens when you don't forgive. Here's what happens. Number one, you become blind to love. I already said that. People don't. You don't even see the people around you that loving care for you. But second thing that happens is you become blind to hope. If you're unforgiving and you're bitter, you become blind to hope because you choose to live in the past. And you will not move and see a future. If you're bitter and unforgiving, you become blind to faith. Do you know why? Because you trust in nobody but yourself. And you're alone. And you're alone. There are people sitting in this room today who are blind to beauty, to love, to God, because you're unwilling to forgive. Well, thanks for making me feel absolutely hopeless. Here's the good news. You ready? The only ground that Satan has is the ground that you give him. But in Jesus Christ, you could take that ground back. You could take that ground back. You don't have to let him in on that. How do you do that? You got to forgive. And if you're going, are you kidding me? That's it? Just like that? Dad, I forgive you. Mom, I forgive you. Boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, I forgive you. Pastor, I forgive Are you kidding me? Yeah, right. Do you know how hard that is to which I say this? The only chance you have the ability to forgive is the gospel. How so, Peter? Jesus one time was talking to a religious leader, Simon. When this when his prostitute came into the room, and you guys remember that story? She lets down her hair, washes his feet with her hair. And Jesus gives a principle to Simon that reverberates throughout history. He says, He who is forgiven much, loves much. So here's what Jesus says. Your ability to love people and forgive people is directly proportional to two things. One, how you are able to A, see the sin in your own life, number one, and B, whether you are able to see how deeply forgiven you are. If you don't see both, you can't forgive. Here's why, reason why. Listen, listen. Number one, if somebody wrongs you, if you don't see the sin in your own life and you don't see yourself as a sinner, you're going to be too proud, too arrogant to forgive because you're going to look at them and say, how dare you do that? I would never, you would never? I would never do that. So therefore, I will not forgive you. If you do not see the sin in your own life, you're going to be too hot. You'll never forgive. But it doesn't stop there. But if you also see yourself as too low, that is, you don't see yourself. Even though you're this wretched sinner, completely forgiven, accepted by Christ, you're not going to be able to forgive. Why? Because you're going to be too depressed, too discouraged, too caught up in self-pity to forgive. It's both! So there's some people sitting here today going, I can't forgive. Here's the reason why you can't forgive. It's not because you don't know. The reason why you can't forgive is either you're too high saying, I would never do that. And God's saying, but I forgave you. Or you're saying, your forgiveness? I don't believe it. I'm this wretched guy going, I died for you. I love you. I gave my life for you. You are that precious. You are that valuable. Look up, child. And if today you're unwilling to forgive, it's because you see yourself too high or too low. when the gospel of Jesus, Christ penetrates our hearts. We look at people that have wronged us and say, he has forgiven me, me. And those words, I would never do that, would not come out of my mouth because I'm frankly capable of worse. And two, He has forgiven me. Wow. Me. And that joy. And that joy. And that joy. Do you know the gospel? Real quick, one more thought before we move on. I'm sorry, I spent too much time. One thought. Another application. If you're a Christian and you read the horoscopes, stop it. If you're a Christian and you go to a friend's party, somebody pulls out a Ouija board, Woohoo! you all say it with me. Stop it. You've got a friend going, I could read palms. Let me see your palms. or get those lines. They connect, blah, 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 blah. Stop it. To which you go, oh, man, you're a big party pooper. First of all, you don't even know me, so don't judge me. And <laughs> second of all, <laughs> second of all, <laughs> I'm not a party pooper, second of all, I'm not naive. Some of y'all got stuff, things you're just messing around with and you're dangerously close to giving Satan and the necessary foothold, friend. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Dude, somebody goes, "Well, what do you think about what do you think about ancestor worship, Peter? I'm an Asian. Ugh. Why did I even just bring that up? Now, everybody, like the Asians in this room are going to be like, we believe in that. I've struggled with that. Like, and, you know, like going to the cemeteries of my grandfather and my grandmother. And what do I do as a Christian? Let me just say this. Let me just say this. There's a big difference between honoring tradition and falling prey to superstition. Okay? You, you, you figure it out. Okay, anyway, so <laughs> let's go ahead. Verse 17. We're almost done. Verse 17. Here we go. Here we go. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, Thaddeus, please come on up. They were all seized with fear. and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. You guys, everybody, please look up here as we finish. A sign of true, genuine conversion results in concrete lifestyle change. these guys practicing sorcery occult they encounter the living God what do they do? they burned you know how much it was worth? I did some little math a drachma is worth of one day's wages that means this is worth 50,000 days of wages that breaks down to 8,300 weeks of days of labor that amounts to 160 years wages is it a lot of money they're sacrificing their money their influence their lifestyle they're sacrificing all of these things why because when you become a Christian when you become a Christian not only is our status changed And I say this every, every stinking Sunday. I haven't done this in all, so I'm going to do that today. When we, when we become a Christian, not only is your status changed, that is you move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Not only do you become move from becoming being an enemy of God to being a child of God. When you become a Christian, not only is your status changed, but your experiences of God changes. And all of a sudden, as a Christian, you begin to get new affections. Things that you used to enjoy and delight when you become a Christian. You find yourself going, what did, I, what did I ever enjoy that for? Can anybody relate to that? And when you become a Christian, the things that you used to not enjoy, all of a sudden, you find yourself going, oh, I used to hate these songs. They're so lame. They're so corny. They're so, as Kevin said, so nerdy as a christian all of a sudden you find yourself singing these songs going why am i liking these songs you find yourself going man peter used to talk forever he only talks like an hour now it seems a lot shorter it's really not It's shorter all of a sudden you start getting these new affections christian child of god has it happened to you a radical conversion results in new affections. That makes me wonder: What is robbing you of your affections for Christ? What is robbing you of your expectations and your passions for Christ? There are some things that may not be evil deeds, neutral in and of itself, but they rob my affections for Christ. I love watching television and movies, but it's not long before I find things enjoyable on TV. What God finds heartbreaking. They're a neutral thing. Sports, I like sports. Guys, you know I'm going with this. I like sports. But if what a 19-year-old kid does with the ball ruins your day, you have a problem. Relationships are great, but are they spurring you towards Jesus? Single men and women, I implore you. I implore you. I implore you if you are in a relationship where that man or that woman doesn't influence you to be more like Jesus love Jesus more, get away what robs you of your affections for Jesus and don't you dare ever settle for this what robs you of your affections for Jesus today guys became Christians and they looked around they said how can I worship him as king and lord and confess and still be involved in this little deal on the side and when they openly confessed and changed their life the power of God came listen can I just tell you the city of Chicago will never experience life transformation if the people of God don't pursue holiness and purity like it meant everything to them I am telling you today i implore you today confess evil deeds repent turn around and go the other way you see them going man i thought i was coming to a grace center church this sounds like fundamental a bunch of legalist fundamental let me tell you what this is the gospel of jesus christ says there's nothing you can do to make him love you less or love you more That's the gospel. He loves you unconditionally. And that's settled. Never, ever. No matter what you plan to do tonight, that's settled. But God says war against sin. Where's the fight? Where's the fight in us? Where's the fight in me? Where's the fight in you? Why do we just settle into this? Well, is this the way life is going to be? Is there anything we can do besides just complain and resign ourselves to our life the way it is? Is this resonating with anybody in this room right now? With anybody in this room right now? I know. Look, look, look. His love. Is this what this means? This means that some of you today need to go home and plan on, listen very carefully, saying no and leaving that incredibly lucrative business practice that you've been looking at because you know that is taking you down the path of destruction. Some of you this means today maybe before you go you pull somebody that you trust and say bro sis i'm massively addicted to pornography i am and nobody knows and it's eating my soul isolation and i feel so far from god and i feel stuck for some of you, this means you go home today and you make that call. You know what you've been saying. People go, I can't listen to the Holy Spirit. You know why you can't listen to the Holy Spirit? Because God's been talking to you for like two years and you go, oh, no, 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 And some of you know, God's been saying, you have no business being that relationship. Today's the day you go home. You make that call and saying, we're done. Some of you, this means in a moment when I ask you to come up. Because there's somebody in your life that you can't forgive and your heart is getting bitter and hard. You confess that evil deeds in front of your brothers and sisters who love you and saying, I need prayer. I'm not all that. I don't want this toxicity in my soul. Friend, and I don't just end there because, you know, here's the deal. You're going, how do I do that? How do I do that? It's, it's possible. Here's how you do it. You don't go, I'm going to work myself. I'm going to discipline. I'm going to pray. The only way that you and I will be able to say no to evil deeds is you got to say yes to something else. And that yes is the beauty of Christ, the fulfillment of Christ, the satisfaction of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, the love of Christ. Amen. The only way that you and I will be able to turn away from sin is be able to look at that sin in the eye and go, there is nothing about you that I would enjoy because my heart belongs to somebody else. My heart is enraptured by somebody else. My heart is given to somebody else and his name is Jesus. He is all that I need. He is my life. He is my soul. And he is not just a means to an end. He is the ultimate end. He is not just means to some larger goal in life, like success. He is my ultimate goal in life. He is not some means to some treasure. He is my treasure. That's how we become people who confess our evil deeds. When you and I, our hearts are raptured, loved, by the beauty, the wonder, the joy of the gospel of Jesus. As we pray today and end, I'm just going to ask those of you sat here today, and there's tons of things we could pray for, but I just want to pray with this one. If there's some of you sitting here today and saying, Peter, this bitterness, the anger, cynicism, skepticism, unwilling to forgive who hid my soul will you stand stand from where you are come on don't be come on stand stand up stand up stand up stand up balcony balcony you guys see who's standing up there because we're going to be we're going to be church we're going to be family today standing up standing up we're going to we're going to wait because I need you brothers and sisters in Christ church family of God to see these men and women they're your family they're your brothers and sisters now here's what I want you to do that's what I want you to do. Those of you that are around them and the aisles behind, gather around them right now. Put your hands on them. Gather around them. Go, go, right now. We don't have a lot of time. Go. Put your hands on them. Gather around them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as you gather around them, I want you to begin to pray for them. And those of you that are sitting because there's nobody around you, if you know of somebody, first and foremost, that's not in this room, but they should be here standing, you pray right now. You pray right now for that person. You pray right now for that person. Begin to pray. Begin to offer up prayers. Begin to pray. Begin to pray that the ground that Satan has will be taken back by the radical gospel of Jesus Christ. Begin to pray for that brother. Begin to pray for that sister. Begin to pray for that relative and that friend. And those of you that are standing around that brother or sister, pray for that person. Pray scripture. Pray truth. Pray, pray the reality of God. Pray, pray that the spirit of God, spirit of God will right now speak would minister from head and to toe. Their entire beings, pray right now. Begin to pray. And fill this sanctuary with prayers offered of God's people. Hallelujah! 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 We pray, Lord. We pray, Lord. We pray. We pray in the name, in the name, in the authority of Jesus. Father, we pray and ask, oh God, that you would soften their hearts. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ resonate. Oh God. We lay our hands and we join our voices, Lord, and pray, reign. Lord God, may they hear your voice. May they hear your voice, O oh, Holy Spirit. May they hear your voice, O oh, Holy Spirit of God. 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 And the love and the power and the glory of Christ and the beauty of Christ and the truth of the gospel and the forgiveness and new life promised by you and in you. Are you come, Are you come, you come? you come, Lord Jesus. May you come, Lord Jesus, Are you come. A healing come, healing come? healing come. And those of you that have stood in your and you're struggling with this, as your brothers and sisters come around you and pray, will you pray for yourself and say, may the gospel of Jesus Christ be brought life into my heart, oh God. May the gospel of Jesus Christ so that I can see who I am in you and so that I can see what it is that I was forgiven from. Gospel Jesus Christ. God. Holy Spirit, God, Jesus. Holy Spirit of God Jesus Holy Spirit of God 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 Lord I give you my heart lord i give you my soul lord i give you my heart and my soul and my life lord i give you my heart lord i give you my soul lord i give you my heart and my soul and my life In a moment, I'm going to have all of us stand. All of us stand as we sing this last song of response. Let me pray. Spirit of the living God, as we gather around our brothers and sisters, our prayers for them, God, is a reflection of our prayers in many ways for ourselves. We pray for your gospel, God, to penetrate, to penetrate our hearts. The good news of the work, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and what that means. Holy Spirit, take that truth. Holy Spirit, take that truth. And speak. And speak. I'm gonna have the worship team here play a little bit for the next 10-15 minutes. I'll be over there by the cross along with some other people from our prayer team to pray for anybody that needs healing. Wanna lay our hands on you and pray? And for anybody that wants to linger in the sanctuary and pray, because God is still wrestling and dealing with you. Don't be in a hurry to go. Stay, stay. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I commission you, church without walls, live out your life this week in the midst of accessible to loving, dialoguing, fellowshipping with men and women who God has sent into your life. They are precious in his eyes. Love on them as Jesus would. Live out your life for the kingdom this week. We'll see you back here next Sunday. Take care.